Hello, welcome to Stern Chats. My name's Khalil. And I'm Karat. Today we'll be discussing Not X Enough with a handful of Stern students. We'll be exploring identity, cultural exploration, everyday failures, and successes. Not X Enough can apply to not feeling white, black, Asian, Latinx enough, queen enough, black enough, or even smart enough. I definitely would love for the conversation to reach a point where we're discussing not feeling good enough as well. I think that's a unifying experience across everyone. Um, so perhaps the overall thrust of this can be a, a touch on our identities, uh, and we can talk about what does and doesn't work for, for us when we feel not X enough. Um, but I'm hoping we can apply some of those lessons to the broader context of not feeling good enough as well. What's your uh, identity, Khalil? So I have a few. Um, I definitely identify as black. I am also proudly Latino. Uh, my dad is from the Caribbean. My mom's from Colombia. Uh, and it was interesting growing up. I think I often felt not something enough. And so whether that was not white enough in the town I grew up in, not black enough in the black spaces I was fortunate enough to occupy, not Latin enough for not speaking great Spanish or for looking a little different than most uh, folks in the U.S. expect a Latino to look. Uh, and it was definitely tough, but I think as you get older in that sort of environment, you start to interrogate where those expectations come from and where you internalize them. Um, and ideally, you start to challenge them. Um, what about yourself? Oh, that was a lot there. Um, yeah, so I can unpack. I identify as Pakistani, Muslim, American. Similarly to you, I felt not white enough in certain spaces, not brown enough in other spaces, and, and still don't as a third-generation American. Um you know, I identify as seeing other people's families and noticing that mine were never like them and, and really feeling like, you know, I wasn't normal and realizing, okay, well, there is no such thing as normal. But um, kind of like through that, we want to facilitate a conversation that creates a space of growth and understanding for our Stern community. So with that, let's dive in. <laughs> Today we'll be joined by MBA 2's Lindsay Pecker and Emily Acker, who first produced uh, the in-person Not X Enough event that inspired this very conversation, uh, as well as uh, MBA 2's Brittany Bowie and Shana Himmelstein. Hello, great to be here. Thank you so much for coming. Um, to start, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and specifically kind of what you'd like to, to touch on today. Okay. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Lindsay. Uh, thank you so much for having me today. Super excited to be here. I actually just recently led this discussion uh, in partnership with ABAS, ABS, Outclass, and JSA, and it was great to have so many diverse voices in one room. Uh, but I'm coming here today um, identifying as a woman, as a Jew, um, and I want to touch upon different times when I felt that I was not Jewish enough and, and the myriad of feelings of not enough I feel in, specifically in the MBA setting. Hi everyone, I'm Shana. Pleasure to be here today with you guys. Um, the identities that I'm bringing with me today to this chat are, uh, I'm a white Jew, I'm also queer. I happen to represent Outclass at the event that Lindsay just spoke about, which was awesome. Um, and also something that we don't talk a lot about, I'm also plus size, so I think that has dictated a lot of me not feeling something enough. Uh, so I definitely would wanna talk about that today as well. Yeah, uh, thanks so much for having me. This is um, a great pleasure. Um, my, I identify, I guess, first and foremost as a woman, uh, a Jewish American, um, and part capitalist, part artist. Happy to be here. Um, I think I wanted to be here because, obviously, I think, you know, this conversation is really important. 
Um, and I feel like a lot of times at Stern, people feel like they're never doing enough of anything. Um, and hearing different perspectives is always helpful. Um, and I think I, I identify um, as a woman, um, as a Vietnamese American, as a Tibetan Buddhist, um, as a sister, a daughter, um, and a um, cousin to many. <laughs> Yeah, so kind of building off of that, Brittany, what's the earliest memory you have of not being enough? Um, yeah, so I grew up in uh, Laguna Beach, California, which is definitely all white. Um, so I was one of the only Asian or minority groups in that city. Um, and so I think I felt it really quick just from school. I was I was put in English second language right away. So I think my actual first memory is in kindergarten when I went to school um, and my parents never taught me English, so it was just Vietnamese. And I remember very vividly meeting a small boy during lunch, and I asked him in Vietnamese what he was eating for lunch, and I pointed to his salad, and he didn't, he couldn't respond to me. And I was so frustrated, and I was like, what is that? Like, what are you eating? You're eating a salad. And he just had no idea what I was saying. And I remember being so frustrated. And then later, they were they told my parents that I couldn't speak English. And so I was in English second language all the way up through fifth grade. Obviously, you learn really quickly when you're young. But that was for sure my first memory because I just felt, like, so alienated from that instant. Um, that's my – and that was, like, when I was in kindergarten. So it's pretty crazy what you can remember. But I do remember that very specifically. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And I wonder what kind of psychos are feeding their kindergartner salad for lunch. But um, Emily, could you share a little bit more about the first time you didn't feel X enough? Sure. I, I think the question brings to mind a specific story. I don't know if it was the first time, but it, I was I was fairly young. I went to a religious summer camp, which is to say that my parents were not religious, and I don't know how I ended up there. But I went to a fairly religious summer camp where you pray three times a day, and all of my friends were religious Jews. And I really was moved by a lot of the programming. Like, I became a spiritual kid, but I, mem I remember feeling like my family was absolutely, like, heathens for <laughs> not keeping kosher. Or, for example, my mother is actually a convert, and so half of my family are Catholics, and so I would spend Christmas with my grandmother or whatever. But I would hear stories at camp um, just about, like, incredible family gatherings or having visited Israel or so something that felt like I wasn't really a part of, despite being told my whole life, yes, you're Jewish, and yes, you celebrate Passover and whatever you've had about mitzvah and all those things, and just feeling this, like, great chasm between what that actually meant and how I experienced it. Yeah, so kind of following that, have you ever encountered family pressure to be or act a certain way that's related to this identity? Um, yes, I think... In the Jewish faith, especially, there is there's a lot of pressure to preserve our our traditions, um, to acknowledge our history, to keep our practices intact, the way that they've been practiced for centuries. And any deviation from that always causes a bit of a stir. Um, so, for me, the way that's come to the surface is any time I've dated someone who is not of the Jewish faith. Um, I've always felt a little tension, like, oh, am I doing something wrong? Um, am I disappointing someone because I'm not going to preserve our people uh, to a certain way? So kind of double-clicking into that consulting terms, um, <laughs> how do you feel like your identity has shifted when you're, you know, open to dating people that are outside of your faith or as you're navigating what being Jewish means to you? Yeah. Um, 
I always think of Judaism as a buffet platter. You take what you like, you leave what you don't. And for me, I always just wanted to be with a partner who's going to embrace my faith and embrace my culture, my traditions. Um, and I take the parts of Judaism that allow for that, that create space for that. That's awesome. Um, Shana, I'd love to hear a little bit about you as well. What was like growing up with your identities, um, what that journey looked like for you, and, and how you got to where you are today? Sure. I mean, for me, I think the most uh, poignant part of my identity that I grapple with a lot was being gay and not wanting to be gay. Um, I first realized that I was attracted to women when I was 12. I was actually in Temple, so a lot of pressure with Judaism there. Um, and I, I really didn't want to be that way. And I think you guys asked a lot about the pressure from my family. And caveat here, my family's amazing. They're all super accepting. I knew nobody would have an issue when I came out. But I think there's this pressure to be, like, the perfect child that a lot of us could probably relate to. And for me, part of being the perfect child meant growing up, marrying a man, having a white picket fence, 1.5 children, whatever that statistic is, right? And for me, I always knew in the back of my head, that's not something that I want, but is that okay? So I pretended like I wasn't gay for a very, very long time. And I didn't even start coming out to people until I was 25. So 13 years of being in the closet because I felt like I wasn't perfect enough, I wasn't doing the right thing. Um, and then talking about family pressure, again, my family hasn't ever said this out loud, but my sister kind of came out and married a woman. And then I felt like, I couldn't be myself because there's already one gay person in the family. Who am I to have another um, child in the family not have the white picket fence and the, the quote-unquote dream life that everybody imagined? Mm -hmm. So a lot of it was pressure that I put on myself. And I think internalized homophobia is something that I've dealt with a lot growing up where my family didn't necessarily put the pressure on me, but I put the pressure on myself. And I think that's the case probably for a lot of identities where it's not necessarily something that someone said or something that someone did, but the understanding that we have of ourselves that we can't be a certain way, even though others would be accepting. So I think that's that's been a big theme in my life, trying to dissect what people expect of me versus what I expect of myself and being able to, to put all of those stereotypes aside. So Lindsay touched on the idea of, of engaging with her faith uh, like a buffet. Are there <laughs> other frameworks or just like tools you had uh, or have um, that help you manage that feeling of not being enough? Like how do you navigate that in real time? I mean, I do love a good buffet, so I love that. <laughs> I think we could all identify as buffet lovers. Um, but as far as how I did, I mean, I think it's also really hard because I talked about not feeling straight enough, but I also don't feel gay enough. Mm. I feel like I'm not someone who goes to gay bars, goes to gay clubs, um, like watches all the movies, like knows about all these stereotypical gay activities. So for me, I feel like I'm kind of always in limbo between being a part of straight culture, and then, but also being gay, but also not feeling like I'm gay enough. Um, and that's actually one of the reasons why I joined Outclass and why I wanted to be one of the presidents. This is the first year that we've had three co-presidents instead of two, and I thought it was so important for people to see a gay person who hasn't been out for 10, 15 years, who hasn't been a part of that culture. So for me, just leaning in and making sure that I could tell myself I am gay enough, even if I don't do all these things. Like, society doesn't define what being gay is. I define what being gay is. Um, and I think that's been really great for me. I mean, being at Stern, it's actually the first time that I've been fully out in all aspects of my life. I was closeted in my last job. Um, so I think just, like, having the confidence saying I am enough and leaning in. I don't know that I have a buffet analogy, but <laughs> uh, trying to ignore the haters, let's say, and just do me. Khalil, I know you're really excited about this question, so I would love to hear from you the first time. You didn't feel X enough. Yeah, I mean, I remember being really young, and I think some of my earliest memories, specifically of not feeling black enough, a lot of that 
insecurity came from the messaging I was getting really from like TV and music and kind of pop culture. Um, and it was then kind of exacerbated by every child around me who were overwhelmingly white, echoing the same sentiment where like I was not the sort of person who fit into their idea or like what TV was telling them a black person should be like. Um, so actually that brings me to the question I really want to ask our guests, which is, you know, where do you think these expectations came from. I learned English th basically through media. So just seeing people on screen, and I used to think, you know, like beauty is lighter skin, beauty is bigger eyes, less of a flat nose. So I would, I spent hours like trying to make my nose <laughs> taller when I was younger, little things like that. And I think that was where a part of my expectation came from too. I mean, now I don't really give a fuck. Um, <laughs> and I think everyone's beautiful differently. But when I was young, I think that was a big part of what I, what I thought I should be too. That story about your nose actually like resonates with me in a really tragic way. I definitely did the same thing. I remember wishing that my skin was lighter like my brother's. Like, so then the follow-up again is like, how did you get to where you are today, right? Where you understand and embrace your own beauty and you can see it in everybody else. Like where were the conflicting messaging, uh, that challenge, what you were getting from TV and elsewhere? And, and how did that help build you up? Yeah, I think, honestly, I don't know exactly, but I think that having gone, feeling so much like an other when you're really young, it, I think I think it can go, have multiple effects. But for me, I think it honestly made me feel stronger. I actually ended up loving the fact that I spoke fluent Vietnamese and so many of my, you know, the people around me only could speak one language. I loved the fact that I looked different. Um and I think that just was something that was gradual. And I don't even – I don't think that I realized all these microaggressions that were happening in middle school, in high school, right? Like when people would, like, say, like, different things to me about my eyes or my nose. I never saw it as racist. I thought it was always out of a place of, of like, interest or love. And I think that that made me appreciate m my differences more, even though maybe that wasn't – you know, it was – maybe it was a – kind of the opposite effect of what I should. But I think it's just time, and I think it's the world changing around you, and then you also with age. I think the greatest thing about age is that you become more confident in who you are as a person, and I definitely felt that. Um, so I'm, it's still happening, but I definitely feel more confident than I ever have before. Yeah. There's the maturity and the rebellion almost bit really resonate with me. I do think I also somehow hit a place where it suddenly clicked that I get to decide, like, what is black enough or Latin enough for me. Uh, and the rest of the world can catch up. And in some ways, I think it is, right? So at the in-person event, I spoke about, you know, Childish Gambino or, like, Kid Cudi being a revelation for me because finally, like, weirdly hipstery, nerdy guys uh, were at the forefront and I could see myself in them. Um, but I had to lean into who, like, my most authentic self first. So, you know, what do you think the role of shame is here and when... As you become an adult, you figure out who you are. You're like, I'm this, I'm that. This is who I will date. This is what my friend group is. This is, you know, how I fit into the world. How do you think shame plays into that? And how do you guys maybe battle with that, whether it's in recruiting where that's like challenging who you are, whether that's in your day-to-day -day life, whether that's with your families or friends? How do you, what, what role does shame play? I mean, I think for me, there's shame in being who you are, but there's also shame in not being enough of that person. So for me, I know when I wrote my applications to Stern and the other business schools I applied to, I almost felt 
shame in that I wasn't worthy enough to even talk about being gay on my application. Who am I to say that I'm gay? I've only been out for X number of years. I haven't really dated women, like whatever the case may be. And I think for me, I had a lot of shame in both being gay, but then also not actually being gay. I told this story at the event that, that Lindsay hosted, um, where the first time I went to a gay event, uh, all the gay people assumed that I was an ally. Um, and I could only imagine it's because of the way I dressed, maybe it wasn't gay enough, wh whatever the case may be. But I think there's a lot more shame that comes from people within the community a lot of the times than people from outside of the community. And I think having 100%. this conversation is so important because it's important to realize, okay, you don't just have to focus on making people feel welcome that are outside of the groups that you identify with, but it's even more important to make the people in your own groups feel like they are a part of those groups. Um, and it was it was really hard for me having a bunch of gay people at a gay, gay fundraiser assume that I was an ally. Like, why else would I be there? I, I had to have been an ally. I couldn't have been gay. Um, so I think, like, shame within the community is sometimes more damaging than shame outside of the community. I 100% agree. And I think it's a way to make you feel like an outcast. Like, oh, you're not you're not really one of us because you don't do X or Y or Z things. You don't dress the way that we do. You don't go to these events. You don't date X, Y, and Z person. Um, yeah, it's, it's a powerful force from within. It's interesting. My family is very much um, a, a representation of the American melting pot. They, uh, I have like a mixture of religions, races, sexual identities, et cetera, et cetera, and it goes on and on. And also, uh, I'm married into a, a black family. So I have this like very wide buffet, if you will, <laughs> of different uh, like social identities that I interact with on a fairly regular basis. Um, and so I've had the ability to, if I don't, not even from a primary source, but also as a secondary source, is listening to other people's experiences, uh, feeling that shame from within their community. And I think. What Britt said too, like the world is changing for the better. And so I think we're talking about this more as millennials and our parents' generation did and realizing that even the variation within our own communities is much wider than I think that we uh, originally were taught. And so with maturity and time, um, those things become more apparent and you kind of can say, okay, I'm fine the way I am, or maybe I'm not fine the way I am for a very specific reason, but I'm the one who gets to change that up because someone else tells me to. Yeah. I, I hear a lot of that in terms of I want to be better in a certain way and that's your own choice versus being bullied into it or having a social pressure around it. There's It's very empowering. Uh, Brittany, how do you feel like shame might play into not feeling X enough and how do you battle, battle it? I think having immigrant uh, parents is really helpful <laughs> because anytime I've ever felt anything, like being bullied at school, if I came home crying because of something, my parents will always reference their the Vietnam War and how they came over here and started all over again so I could suck it up because nothing that I've e that I'll ever experienced will come near what other people experience. And I think, you know, part of that is bad where I'm more repressing how I feel because I always am comparing to what my parents and what other immigrants, what other people are going through. So I always kind of minimize my own problems and how I feel. But then also, I think because I've done that my whole life, I've also been able to do a lot of great mm -hmm. things that maybe I wouldn't have if all of that space was taken up my, you know, my constant feel of shame or, you know, fear of, of, you know, different things. So I think a part of it is something that I definitely need to work on, you know, that like constant immigrant um, guilt. guilt. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, too, I, I kind of appreciate that I have that perspective because I think it has allowed me to, to do a lot in my life and to move on really quickly and, and kind of put things into perspective. 
Yeah, definitely plus one to immigrant parents. I think a huge help for me on my journey was the reality that because my the black half of my family is not really rooted here in the U.S., there were a lot of comparisons I grew up with that as I kind of came into myself, I started to realize, like, didn't even make sense. Like, mm-hmm. the black experience is not a monolith. Culturally, you know, it, it's we are very much a diaspora. And so it was much easier, I think, um, at a certain point for me to recognize that, oh, you know what, like, there's a ton of different ways to be black because right. I can see it and I'm living it. And these people don't even have the frame of reference to get that. And so it's easier now to start drowning those voices out. And so I would say in addition to like tough conversations, um, you know, an inherent like strength, I also think exposure can maybe be a really good tool um, for folks to start to really reckon with their their assumptions of like what it means to be a certain identity and what that's supposed to, quote unquote, supposed to look like. Yeah, I think that's a really great point, Khalil, because Stern is all about EQ plus IQ, Mm -hmm. but if you're not exposed to those tough situations, you can't teach empathy. It's not a skill that you can teach someone. And so I used to have this theory that we should just take Americans who haven't left the U.S. before and leave them on like a border (laughs) of like some war-torn nation and let them figure out the language and, and kind of grow that empathy for immigrants and for other cultures. But jokes aside, I do think exposure and actually seeking that out is kind of helpful and why do you find where you're from interesting um i find that an interesting question because it's a way to tap into someone's background and learn about who they are but it's also a way to make them feel uncomfortable it's a real it's a double-edged sword um and usually when i i whenever i ask that question i am super mindful of that so i i try to ask it in a way that it, it taps into the first part where I'm really curious showing demonstrating curiosity but for for people who have felt uh discriminated against by that question I'm curious you know what are people's feelings around that yeah so for me where are you from um it, it is a loaded question I think it's something that people don't always think through uh because yeah it's it's immediately brings forth all these questions of like Am I Latin enough to to claim Colombia? Am I black enough to claim, you know, the Caribbean? Do I just say New Jersey? Like, what's the context? What are the consequences for claiming a different identity? Um, So it can be a surprisingly loaded question. Uh, It might be one of those moments where, you know, the benefit of the doubt, you kind of got to go case by case and and play it by ear. Karam, I'm curious what you would think, because you're a little more ethnically ambiguous than me, so I'm sure you get this question a lot. Yeah, so I think... When people ask, where are you from? It is definitely because a place of curiosity. And so I always answer that by saying Houston, Texas. Like, oh, you can't tell by my Southern charm. Ha, ha, ha. I dress in black. I'm aggressive, et cetera, et cetera. And then when I get the follow-up of where are you really from, I feel bad. I feel mm-hmm. like the other. And I don't feel like it's phrased properly. And that's actually happened at Stern. Um, and so I kind of let that person know, like, hey, I'm from Houston. So I think, like, asking the question sometimes, as long as it's phrased in a better way, is fair. Um, But when it's kind of phrased with, like, where are you really from, it's that feeling of otherness. Because I feel more American than I do Pakistani, and I'm not really feeling like I'm part of either community. There's absolutely an inherent challenge, almost. You know, if I tell you I'm from New Jersey and you say where I'm really from, then what you're saying is, like, well, you couldn't really be from New Jersey, and that's one of my homes. Um, So, yeah. So I think maybe building off of that, what do you think would be helpful for Stern students to take away from this podcast and work on creating a space that's inclusive, that can help you 
better showcase who you are, feel more comfortable, maybe even embrace identities that maybe you struggle with that you weren't open to sharing today? I think what I'd say, uh, my takeaway that I'd love for people to have after this is not making assumptions about people based on whatever identities they present or don't present. Um, I think that a lot of people make assumptions. Um, I, I talked about that event about am I gay, am I not gay. I don't know when I meet a person if they're gay or if they're straight. I don't think that you should have to pick a label, just like you should be able to pick from a buffet whatever you want, right? And I think a lot of people make assumptions like, oh, if you're not an outclass, you're not gay. And that's not true. Uh, sexuality is a spectrum, and I'm sure this applies to a lot of the other identities in this room, but just be, it's not black and white, and you shouldn't assume that someone is something unless they literally tell you they are that thing. I don't assume that anyone at Stern is straight unless they tell me I am straight, because I don't want people to feel the same pressure that I felt to be a certain way or that they fit in a box. Like, these boxes are stupid and constructed by society. They're unnecessary. So mm-hmm. don't make assumptions about people unless they tell you who they are and what they identify with. Don't guess. Mm-hmm. Khalil. Any uh, closing words or any ways that you think uh, Stern could, the Stern community could, you know, kind of keep that up? Would love to hear from you as, as someone who has his own identities. When I think about kind of this conversation on the national scale, I think a community that's very good at having this conversation explicitly and articulating their cause very, very well is is the conversation we're having around uh, gendered identities. And I think as a country right now, we're really challenging all the assumptions. Um, uh, you know, and so folks who might not feel feminine enough or masculine enough are recognizing that those words don't actually mean or they don't have to mean all the things that we've, like, forced them to mean for so long. Uh, and so I, I take a lot of... Uh, I find that very inspirational, and I, I think that's that's a model for the sorts of tough conversations we can have across a bunch of different identities. Something that I've heard uh, through our peers talk about is having inclusive leadership as a core course. Uh, I think that that is um, such a wonderful precedent to set, to set uh, as a school and as a thought leader in business school of what it takes to be successful, especially in today's economy. And to not teach it necessarily as a social endeavor, which, of course, it could be, but in fact as a core competency of a business executive. Outside of the classroom, I think something that, like, a great resource Stern can pull from is the affinity club kind of ecosystem. Um, When I think about how I approach Abbas as a co-president, I'm very, very sensitive to the reality that back in college, I was too insecure in my identity to really jump into the Black Student Association Mm -hmm. with two feet. And the same went for my Hispanic identity. And so I think a lot about what we can do to make sure that any Sternies who might kind of be at that point of their their journey towards um, embracing and kind of defining themselves, uh, what I can do to make sure they acknowledge, they understand that the door is open. I'm thinking a lot about what I can do to make sure they know that the door is open, uh, because it is. And I think as a community, in my experience, I think Stern is overwhelmingly understanding and supportive uh, and, frankly, loving. And so that's how I want to kind of lead as well. Uh, And so things like the Not X Enough in-person event that we did are a great example of having the uncomfortable conversations, but doing it for the purpose of kind of opening the doors wider for everybody to come in. Yeah, and I love that. I love the cross-club collaboration Mm -hmm. because it gives us even more of an opportunity to learn that members of ABAS are actually more similar to ABS or JSA, et cetera. We're so connected in these experiences. And I think even if you're not within an affinity group, 
you have those experiences and you may not realize that you're having them as well. Someone has always had an experience where they feel like the other, they don't feel good enough. And it can be recruiting, it can be a life event, it can be a day-to-day situation. Okay, great. So we wanted to give a huge thank you to our guests, Emily, Shana, Brittany, and Lindsay. Thank you for being vulnerable with us. We wanted to thank the Stern Studio. This is the first in-person episode we've taped since the pandemic. That's a big deal. Thanks to our listeners as well. We're excited to continue our conversations about identity this year at Stern. Thanks, Stern Chats. Thank you, everybody. Take care.